Hi, and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the Guys the Guitar Show UK. Uh, I'm sat, as normal, staring at the screen, looking at my good friend Jace Hunt. How are you, Jace? I'm very well, Ant. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really well. The um, the, the child that was self-isolating is now back at school. Um, so some semblance of order has been restored to the house. Excellent. So everything's going, everything's going fab. Um, and in by far the... Probably the most rock and roll backdrop we've had to a guest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we have Bruce Dickinson with us. Uh, hi, oh, Bruce. How are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, the backdrop is um, it's part of the work of a Brighton artist called Jim Sanders, um, and it's become part of the Water Bear thing, the Water Bear College. It's uh, it's the look of it and the feel of it. It's a little bit art school what we do, I suppose. Hmm. So it's reflected in Jim's work. But it is very, it is quite rock and roll. It's got that kind of. Uh, it's quite wild. I mean, it's the real yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. It, art good. is uh, there's a difference between art and craft, and it's something that I talk about with musicians quite a lot. Uh, and the point of having an artist that's as, that's as good as Jim is to make that point that with your music, craft's fine, but at the end of the day, you've got to make art. Hmm. Well, that's that's a piece of art. That's what that, that's what it's for to remind us of that. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, uh, and this is quite a special one for me because. Uh, I grew up uh, and my university years uh, were framed by uh, a bit of a resurgence in UK, well not resurgence, but a, a special moment in sort of UK rock music. And, um, and, and you were the guitarist in one of the bands from that period, uh, certainly as far as I'm concerned, which was Little Angels. So, mm. so it's a bit of a fanboy moment for me, this, but I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to keep, <laughs> it, keep it all together. And what Bruce doesn't know is I actually, we were at the same event uh, a few years ago. Uh, I, I met Bruce briefly in Guildford Cathedral. Oh, was it the Andertons? It was the Andertons do. Uh, Amazing. And I, and I did that fanboy thing of popping over and saying, oh, Mr. Dickinson, I was a real big fan. <laughs> well, thank you for flying the flag. I mean, it's very, thank, thanks Tom, I've got my cup of tea coming. Um, that was the tea appeared. I mean, um, cheers. It's, yeah. Yeah, the Andertons event, it was a really great thing because I've known Lee and his dad, Pete. Pete. Pete Anderson gave me my first education gig, which was coming off the back of that glorious period that you mentioned when suddenly rock and roll was really important all over the world. Mm. You know, we'd had the new wave of British heavy metal, which had set the scene, and suddenly it was commercialised with Eddie Van Halen and then, um, and then Bon Jovi, of course. And we were a kind of young, daft version of Bon Jovi, so we had the right thing at the right time. And also, not afraid to be commercial. We wanted to be on Radio 1. And there was this huge wave where, you know, music was culturally just everything. It was, it was life and death, you know. And to live through that was amazing. And then, of course, we all got... Um, it, there was the, the, the resurgence of the punk thing in the form of grunge and Kurt Cobain, really. Yeah. Uh, which wiped the floor and then it became a, a different thing. But a very interesting piece of history, that period. It- it it was, and I think, and I'll come back to the Andersons event in a minute. But um, it, the, what there was, there was a lot of energy, uh, yeah. and I think the UK output 
So you've got stuff going on in the US, and you're right, there's the Bon Jovi yeah. thing going on, there's the Def Leppard thing going on, we've got all the MTV bit that's yeah. going alongside of it, but the but the kind of the UK variant, so the likes of yourselves and Thunder and those kind of bands and Skin yeah. and what have you, it was it was more energy and, and, and probably, can I say, less of the froth in that, less of the, 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 less of the big hair, there was well, less of the... Well, we didn't have the money, that, you know, the yeah. States is a very big market, you know, but we had, we did have... A lot more money than you'd have today. Like an album budget back then would be 300 grand, you know, hmm. not, wow. not three, you know. Um, and um, the, there was a certain spirit to it that was a little bit more homemade, I think. So yeah. I, was, I was thinking we were basically Bon Jovi crossed with the monkeys, you know. But, <laughs> but we but entirely unself-aware about it. But it all centred around the Marquee Club. That's the scene. Yeah. Um, and that I think that energised it, and there, there was other stuff. Nottingham Rock City was an important venue, mm. um, and there was Shades Record Club Record Shop in London, which was very important because it was the it, it was still people don't realise it was still built on a DIY ethic. We were on a major label, but our history was an indie label, and before that, a DIY record out. Mm. So in some ways, things haven't changed. But when you got that that vinyl, and you were and we were at Six Farm, we got our first twelve inch single made. And you'd go to Shades, that was a shop, and if you could get your record in that shop, uh, and you could get Kerrang to sort of notice it, then you were a real band, you know, and off you went. I think I mentioned Shades before. I, when I was at school, because I think you're a year older than me. Right. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't really a scene in Birmingham sort of yeah. while I was at school, but you, you'd go through the back of Kerrang, wouldn't you? Yeah. And you'd, you know, read these adverts. And I, I can remember getting in touch with Shades and, um, and because it was like a million years ago, you corresponded via letter, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, you did. And um, Kelv Hellraiser, uh, who worked in Shades, sent me, yeah. started sending me sort of like demo cassettes that yeah. I didn't pay for yeah. of sort of British bands, like it was bands Rich Rags, Brooklyn Dogs yeah. and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And there, then was he, that, there was that glam scene, which was a precursor to Guns N' Roses. You know, yeah. the Choir Boys came out of that a little bit, which is another band from, from our area. And alongside it was the development of the, heavy, the heavier music and John Peel championed a lot of those bands and the, the, um, uh, the Nepam Death kind of mm. stuff and Venom from, you know, up north. Um, and Earache Records was a very important, still going, still very successful Earache, still very important. But I've got then, someone at the door. I'm really sorry. There's no one else okay. in the house. We'll, we'll carry, okay. on. carry on. We'll carry on. Yeah. Jason, yeah. pick up that thought, Bruce. I was listening anyway. So, you know, um, there was two threads developing. There was the kind of commercial kind of rate. It was all about Radio 1. You know, mm. for your career, if you're on a major label, you have to have a hit pretty quick. Which we, we, we didn't. We were under pressure. We released the first album, No Hits. And what saved us, um, and I remember feeling that on, on the major label, you are under the spotlight. And I remember feeling mm. that, oh my God, you know, because once you were dropped at that point, you were out the, out of the club. Yeah. It wasn't like today where you could keep your career going. And we wrote a, we co wrote a tune called Radical Your Lover with a guy called uh, Dan Reed. Dan Reed. say, Dan Reed Network. Yeah. Um, a great artist. And he gave us our first hit. And we re-released the album, and and then that, that was that the start of that string of uh, of a few top forty hits kind of thing. Um, and it, that, you know that I look back and I, I do miss that in the modern music scene, that culture of of 
you had to get your songs right because there was this gatekeeper. It was the A&R man and, and the radio. So we were all co-writing all the time. Mm. And I do miss that from today's scene. I think it's something we could learn. There's a lot of stuff we can still learn from from that era. What was interesting about a lot of your stuff, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. It was listening, uh, I was listening to, uh, to uh, Young Gods and um, there's almost that kind of um, sort of soul side to what you did with the horns and some of yeah. the chord progressions and if you listen to you know um some of the i'm trying to think of the name of the, who's the guy that wrote all wrote all the motown hits wrote with wrote with the likes of wilson pickett and wrote with so all the things like midnight hour and what have you, you know what i'm talking yeah, about don't you can't remember his name. Yeah. But but there, but there was that kind of feel to what you did so if you think about riffs to things like midnight hour and that yeah. kind of stuff and I was pl- I was jamming along to one of your tunes the other night. Um, uh, I think it was my kind of life or something. And thinking this is very similar in that. And of course, when you throw the horns in as well, yeah. So there was a quite a w- interesting sort of take on it. It wasn't yeah. up and up and at the front, but it was no. there. No, but we, in- well, you know, we we love things like Creedence Clearwater. Yeah. Um, and you know, and my influences were pre the Van Haleny sort of thing. Even though I was of that era, it was more Peter Green. I was mm. very interested in that lineage of, of that British blues sound, which was it's got a particular timing thing. Mm. Doesn't Steve swing. Cropper, by the way, is the get the yeah, name. Yeah. Oh, Steve Cropper, of. yeah, of course. Yeah. And um and he, he you know, Steve Cropper I would have listened to you know, a lot and I love the minimalism of that mm. stuff. But a lot of it does boil down to Hendrix, which is the kind of middle ground between soul, mm. funk and, and rock. And I was obsessed with Hendrix when I was younger, you know. And then the horns, I mean um, that was on our, that first record that we wrote with Dan Reed. It was the first experiment in the horn section. It just worked for us. And I do remember doing, when the band got together after 20 years, we did Download in 2012. We, I, I think we were the only band who played a major chord in, in three days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I've always liked um, major, not major key as such. I like that middle ground between major and minor, you know, that, mm. that, that kind of... Um, that kind of slightly mixolydian thing, if you want to think of it theoretically. But it, it does come from listening to you know, stuff like Credence, I think. Mm. Yeah. Roots, Roots is... I like music to sound a million years old or a million years in the future. Mm. So you've got to connect to something um, that's, that's as, as old as the hills. And for me, it's always the blues. That's what it all comes back to. Because mm. I, was, I, was I was listening to the record thinking, A, a this hasn't, a, hasn't aged... You know, um, badly at all. I mean, it sounds yeah, I really know. fresh. Oh, no, I know. I, no, I, maybe <laughs> maybe it's rose tinted glass a bit for me, but I didn't yeah. think it had. But it has got that kind of knock on wood, midnight hour kind of feel about yeah. it, which is yeah. you know that classic thing, which just sits underneath it and gives it gives it lo- loads of energy. Oh well, it's very kind. Yeah, I mean, I don't tend to listen to it, but the thing that you know, Planet Rock, the radio station, mm. they fly the flag for classic rock. And I think they do an amazing job in investing in new music as well, mm. because by definition, they're almost having to play classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they've done really well for another generation of, of musicians. And Planet Rock still, it's so substantial that it keeps, it, it keeps the rock thing alive, I think, in mm. the UK. And I must yeah. admit, this last year, I've started to hear bands that are starting to sound like bands from that period. Yeah, that simplicity of it seems to have there seems to be something in it at the moment. It's you know. I remember. Um, I mean, you know, when it, Kurt Cobain released Nevermind, it was like scorched earth for guitar. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, I went to see Soundgarden and they're all facing the back and it was all anti, anti-musical kind of solos. Great guitar players still, but it was very much, you weren't putting your foot on the monitor and doing the Eddie Van Halen thing. It was socially unacceptable and I still have long hair for a bit. And little kids used to follow me down the street shouting 80s metaler and laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, and I remember that the, the first time I started to notice it coming back was some 41 who, who had a kind of, pseudo Iron Maiden solo twin yeah, yeah. And it was a little bit ironic and really funny and they, they sort of couldn't quite pull it off which made it brilliant and then it was the darkness and mm. I remember someone sending me a kind of mashup of we had a song called Do You Want a Riot and the darkness's first hit I can't remember which one it was uh, but anyway, I believe in a thing called love there were A, B in it and it was just like you couldn't tell where one started and one finished <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, we can do guitar solos again. We can, like, we can, we can have our Thin Lizzy t-shirts back on. I mean, it was, it was quite a thing. You know, if you devoted your life to playing guitar and you, you, you believed it was really important, there, there wasn't a, a guitar solo on a record for 10 years for a while in the charts. No, anyway. no I think the only, I mean, the only one I've heard through that period really was, and it was towards the end, I think it was when they'd changed record labels, but McFly put an album out. Right. And it's not the earliest stuff. It was it yeah. was the last. I can't remember which one it was, but it apps as a rock record. It's yeah. brilliant. Oh, they can uh, play. They can play them boys, and they can write. They can write tunes really well. Yeah. And it was. And you know, it was, I mean, I think there's for with rock musicians. Sometimes there's this sort of thing about pop music. Actually, you know, it's all the same skills. Like getting down to the nitty gritty, being um, being focused in the in your writing and cutting out the flab. Um, ACDC are an amazing pop band. Mm. Um, it's just wrapped up in a different way, you know. Mm. And I think, um, I think with rock and roll, uh, it's nice. I love the underground thing and a little sweaty club and very exciting niche music. But there's something glorious about a stadium full of people mm. going nuts and sharing the same core values, almost. Yeah. Well, in that respect, there's not an enormous amount of difference between that and Oasis. If you be, if you take it that far, sing not sing so. along tunes on a you know on a on a big stage. Yeah, and you know, I've I've, I've, over the years spent a lot of time with a very proficient uh, jazz fusion kind of crowd, and you know, when you play, when you spend a few years hanging around Guthrie Govern, you realise that you don't really have to compete in that space because he's kind of got it down, Um, Mm. and you know, that's really interesting as well. But I do think it's it's incredibly challenging to write a simple tune, and the greatest for me, the greatest. Example of this is Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash, which for me is the greatest song title in rock and roll because it's immediately, you know what's going on, but you're engaged in the story and the, the kind of minimalism of it. It's, it's a great rock and roll record. Very, very, very hard to do. But it's so the much, illusion of simplicity. So much so that One Direction ripped it off completely, didn't they? Was it the second Did or they? third single? I mean, right. it's almost identical. My daughter got it on um, right. this week. It's it's so blatant, but then I think their first hit was a rewrite of Summer Loving. So, um... well, you know, um, my brother had a a minor hit with a song which is a rewrite a rewrite of the Are You Being Served um, theme. theme (laughs) Oh, amazing! Genius, you know. So we, you know, we all do a bit of that, and that's craft. You know, we do have to, you know, in our writing, we do start with references and stuff. But at some point, uh, art has got to take over. And I think that's the difference with out-and-out pop music. Some of it is pure craft and science, mm. almost. Mm. You know, what sort of bass drum sound is it? It's really, really trendy like that. Let's have that, you know. Um, high level of skill, 
but it's a high level of craft skill. Um, whereas I, I would look at the, the class record and go, well, that's that's a, a different thing. It's art. Mm. It comes from another place, you know. So I've got to ask, um, and it, this was more of a, a check for me that I wasn't going mad. Um, yeah. You did, you did strap a banjo to a Telecaster, didn't you, back in the day? I remember seeing you on stage with that particular hybrid combo. Yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't strapped. It was sort of constructed and glued, so it had struts behind and it was all screwed together, you know. Um, and it went in a flight case, which is like a, almost like a flying V flight case that was bigger. <laughs> and it went off, to, it went, the banjo didn't go to a guitar amp because it was, the banjo's too lively, it's an acoustic instrument. And it would have a bug on it, like an acoustic guitar bug. Uh, bug. It'd be gated to hell and it would go to the PA. <coughs> and the, the problem I had with it, you had to be careful where you stood. Because if you went anywhere near the drummer, the thump of the bass drum would, would transmit into the skin of the, of the banjo. And so it was, it was a little bit tricky to, to make it work, but, but um, it, I mean, why, I mean the, the telecaster was tuned and toned up, so it kind of sounded like a banjo anyway. And these days in the set, I just play it all on an up-tuned telly. Yeah. But it's fun. And, you know, we are musicians and we... we we take music really seriously, but we're still entertainers. And the biggest reason for constructing that monstrous monstrosity was to have a bit of a laugh with it. And you could see it, you know, you'd put that thing on and all the photographers in the pit would be screwing on the lenses and, you know. And that's, that's the game, that's rock and roll, you know. And um, I sometimes get this with people that are studying music degrees and they say it should all be about the music. And my answer is, well, maybe, but if Jimi Hendrix can put the effort in, Mm. you know and look cool and set his guitar on fire and you know make it a bigger spectacle then then you know we should as well i think yeah i, I did that in a, um, a management lesson a couple of weeks ago and uh I, you know and i was it's getting controversial. The, yeah. they're getting the business students to look out of the classroom if you like at the instrument students yeah and go look at them do they look like rock stars yeah I, I don't care which part of history you're from, whether it be Kurt Cobain's ripped jumpers or Jimi Hendrix's, you know, military jacket. Yeah. They both looked like stars. Yeah. First yeah. and foremost. Well, it's like Lemmy said, isn't it? You know, you're applying for the job of rock star. So you've got to be clear about that. Now, are you applying for a job of, of session musician? Because that's got its own etiquette. With the, with the, you know, close, the, you send a message, don't you, with all kinds of ways. The guitar you get out of the case... You know, um, sends a very strong message. Um, the way you look, it all transmits, and it's all part of the job of being an artist and standing for something. Because there's a lot of people who can play a bit of guitar. That that you, just because you can play guitar well, the world doesn't owe you a living. So you've got to find your niche within it. Um, and I agree with you. Rock and rolls, rock and roll, and uh, and the the difficulty you have is if you. Say, so, oh, it should all be about the music, and yet you do want your record deal, or you do want a big audience, and you know. Um, and also, having no image is, is quite a calculated thing. If you look at the Soundgarden example that I was talking about yeah. earlier, you know, that's a very constructed anti image, which is as, as and Kurt Cobain, it's as considered as, you know, anyone else, as Lady Gaga, you know. Yeah, mm. I did go and see Soundgarden on their first UK tour. They played yeah, I did. Um, yeah. the Irish Centre in Birmingham. I think I saw them at Glasgow Barrowlands. And they were bloody awful. I, mean, I, I had the same. I was like, it was uh, the record. I mean, the records have just 
still amazing now. But the show, but it was a reaction, wasn't it? A reaction to us, reaction to Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we toured with all them bands and it was like big walkways and fire and, you know, sort of ZZ Top. It was like troops of dancing girls and motorbikes on stage. And, and uh, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and, you know, Nirvana, they felt that was childish pantomime and they were right. But, but you know, there was something glorious about its uh, dumbness. With music, you either, you either gravitate towards stuff that reminds you of where you're from. Yeah. Or, in my case, who came from working class Birmingham that was pretty grim in the 70s and 80s in terms yeah. of mass unemployment same scarba scarba yes it's all and, and i gravitated towards stuff that took me away from mm. that yeah i mean it, it's no it's no wonder that you know the first record i ever bought was adam and the ants and then i discovered kiss and alice cooper it was all some kind of weird fantasy rock and roll land that looked really exciting yeah, when but you put then... the two together i mean that's the genius of um living on a prayer because you got that and that together, and that was that was Little Angel's career in a nutshell. Our whole career was built on writing songs about getting out of a small town, mm. and also not a coincidence that when we got to the third album, um, our career stopped. And it wasn't just Nirvana changing fashion; it was also that we, we were now we were out of a, a, a town. We weren't that young anymore, and we'd run out of stuff to say. And that was the function of Little Angels; it was to represent those people who wanted to do what we did go from Scarborough to London and then the world you know well and I think if you if you go back to then so I was born and raised on the on the North Nottinghamshire coal yeah uh, scene so uh, yeah. we were just down the road from you know where it all kicked off at Orgreave and what have you yeah uh, and 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 if you think about you know, I lived through the miners' strike and all those kind of things we were yeah. all desperate to get out of places yeah because everything was fairly grim yeah, yeah, and that's why we were we were eighteen writing songs with a song called "When I Get Out of Here" and you know, "Big Bad World" stuff like that. Um, and when we when we do do gigs, which which we do probably every ten years or so, um, the we're still playing them tunes, and I think everybody um, in the audience is reliving that feeling, and it's interesting to see where everyone's pitched up. Hmm. Um, when we all got back together in 20, 2012, it'd been 20 years since we'd done a gig. And uh, we reckon that you could almost reckon, it was, it, it was like all that chunk of time hadn't happened. Um, and the internet had just really sort of made the band visible again because it was like it never happened for about 10, 15 years. And the only thing that, that had changed was we ordered our T-shirt stock for the tour. And we just, without thinking, we ordered the same stock that we normally would. And we <laughs> sold out. Mediums. <laughs> we sold out of extra, extra large in the first hour of the first gig. <laughs> and we got left with all these little skinny ones because we were like 18 and everyone was skinny. And, and you looked out in the crowd and there's a lot more bald heads. And, you know, so we've all got older and lived life, but, um, but and probably left the small towns. And yet we come back to celebrate mm. that. It's really interesting what you said there about you'd, you'd almost run out, the, the band's reason for being had kind of yeah. exhausted itself. You'd yeah, almost run yeah. out of things to, to say, which is which is really fascinating, actually. Um, um, because the only thing I was going to say there was the, there's a, 
there's a track on the final album on Jam um, that um, that that talks to um, ra- essentially talks to racism. Um, right. Yeah. 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 Um, and and that that felt like a change from the previous stuff. That yeah. felt like a different piece of commentary. Um, yeah. And uh, but but I guess I guess there wasn't enough of that. You weren't bothered about enough of those kind of things to keep that. Uh, well, I think that, that that came from Toby's experience because he, he had a girlfriend from Malaysia, um, and he'd had a little bit of that in Scarborough. Mm. And, you know, sort of. And I think he was documenting that. But you, we were just we were we were eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, and you just the, the tools for your songwriting is your life around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So that that was. You know, a, a part of his life, I think, which is why that song um, came out. Mm. But then you go from Scarborough and you go to London, and the same things happen with a lot of bands. You start to get your own interests, you know, and mm. and um, and go your separate ways musically slightly. But it's the lyric that is the thing. If you haven't got those subject matter and song titles, because the world's full of music, you don't need to contribute. It's got to be a reason for you to write that song. Mm. And without that, there's no band. And I remember we, we, we did release this god-awful record, which haunts me to this day. There's a song called Ten Miles High, which was Mike Fraser producing, brilliant producer. And it's a pant song. And, and I think uh, I looked at that and went, you know, uh, it's a well-produced record, but there's no content. Mm. And there wasn't any signs of any more content it's time to knock it on the head and mm. the, the, we did one thing really well we we wrapped up at the Royal Albert Hall which is our biggest headline gig mm. so it was a nice place to end um, and then we left it for 20 years which was quite interesting and I didn't think we'd ever ever get back together again but of course it was Mike Lee our drummer who sadly died yeah so the first half of Little Angels was Mike Lee on drums and it was Mark Richardson both amazing amazing drummers and and very different drummers, but very privileged as a guitar player to to, to be playing with people like that because they can make me sound five times as good as they am. Because they're so good. And Mike Lee, unfortunately, he um, he led a very fast life, and he was such a talent. He could just play drums. He, if he heard it, he could play it, and there never seemed to be any process where he had to had to actually do the practice. If he heard it, he could, and he could always do it. And he didn't know how he could do it, he just could. And he ended up getting the gig with uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and doing that celebration tour in about 94. Absolutely the top of his game, and that's a tough gig to do if you're replacing John Bonham, and he completely pulled it off. But what he couldn't cope with was anything kind of outside of drums. It was like real life was, everything was subordinated to this amazing drumming. Um, and sadly, Mike had died at age 40. So we hadn't seen each other for 20 years. And, you know, that's the first time we're getting back together again. Um, and that's the point where, you know, life's a bit too short to be not speaking and all that. So let's, you know, let's, let's, it was a bit later. We started to feel like it was the right thing to do to do a few more gigs. Hmm. So what comes what comes after Little Angels then? So what what because you know we, you you did the the final album. There was a greatest hits, I think, which I think yeah. is that that sing, that single you were talking about came off the greatest hits album, didn't it? Yeah, the, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and then you move on from from there, and it's it's blow after that, isn't it? Yeah, that was on an indie label again, um, and it, I really like them records. I mean, 
uh, I, well, I like twenty five percent of them. <laughs> um, you know, and you know, it was a we we definitely going down a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of drugs around in that band. And it who'd was, have thought with that name? Uh, yeah, and it got out of hand. I mean, it was naive to start with because we were still young, and I, I thought drugs were like were fine. And I thought that anyone who, who tried to try to you know there was really weak adverts on the TV that were sort of patent nonsense, you know. So it was easy to dismiss the dangers of it. And I thought it was just people being party poopers, grown ups being party poopers, because we were having a great time at first towards the tail end of the Little Angels a bit as well. And then through that blow albums, it started to get darker and people started to get unwell. And uh, Nick Boys, who's an amazing bass player in Blow, had, had, um, had some real serious mental health hospi- uh, uh, situation and, and ended up being hospitalised at the end of one of our tours. Um, and I, obviously then I started, you had to grow up a bit and go, OK, well, I've done two albums with this, but if I hang in this, my life's going to go a certain way. And I kind of wanted, didn't want that anymore, you know. Um, but I look back at those records, they're all recorded live, or a lot of it was, this Man and Goat as well, it's my favourite one. We had a guy called Ken Thomas producing, who produced Peter Green. Um, so I learned a lot about the way to record live in a room. One of those tracks on that record recorded with one mic, as he would have recorded in 1930, the whole band through the vocal mic. Um, so I loved it, but a critic, it was, we started getting good reviews, which Little Angels didn't, because we were poppy, so you, you know, didn't tend to get critical acclaim if you were on Radio 1. Suddenly it was getting really good reviews, but couldn't pay the mortgage. Um, mm. And it had that niche thing. These days, you could really make that work. But back then, pre-internet, you couldn't. So great memories of, of that band. But that, I hung my guitar up uh, after that and started doing the education thing. Hmm. So was it was it ACM first? Was yeah. Was that the first Mid Mid-90s, mid-90s. And it was brilliant because Pete Anderton and uh, Phil Brooks had started this college and I just was there teaching a blues guitar course, which I loved. But, but my old man's a headmaster and there must be something in the genes and I ended up running the college. And my idea was to really look at simple done well, the Steve Cropper thing. It's like you could you could tell you could give a, a raw beginner Steve Cropper's licks, but it isn't going to sound like Steve Cropper. And you know, my feeling of, of of colleges at the time was they were turning out people who were technically reasonably proficient. They could play really fast. Come play in time, didn't have a didn't have a sense of context and didn't have a sound. So they were unrecordable and unemployable. So I said, let's do that. Let's do that study path into jazz fusion, let's take that really seriously and put the hours in, but let's also look backwards at playing simple things really well. And you'd be amazed, if you want, if you get a, um, a thousand guitarists to play an A chord, like Malcolm Young, on the downbeat, you get two or three that can properly do it, where the intonation's good, there's attack in the right hand, and it's landing on the downbeat or behind or in front, wherever they want it to be, you know. Um, and Malcolm's a really good example, you know, very, very hard to do that, but very easy to do a version of it if you've had a, got a guitar for Christmas, you know? Yeah. So I was fascinated by that. Simple done well, and that became the mantra, still is, because we developed a way of auditioning for big gigs, and there was a, a, a lad called Chris Leonard who's 
ended up writing a lot of songs for Ed Sheeran in recent years. And he got his a, a break on a TV show, got an audition, and they had a house band, it was Saturday morning kids TV show. And me and Chris worked out a way of auditioning in order to get the gig. And it involved getting the right, turning up on time, looking great, but slightly understated, getting the right guitar out of the case, playing A, G and D, shutting up, putting it back in the case or on the stand and listening to what they said. And over the years, a lot of our young guitar players have used that and it, 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 it's, uh, it's amazing how often it does work. You know. so I love you, that. You, That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> you go from um, ACM to setting up your own thing. Well, I didn't, own, yeah, didn't own ACM. Yeah. And uh, I trained myself up, so I'd done my master's by then. Didn't have a degree, didn't have any A-levels because we'd been in a transit van. And I discovered this thing called work-based learning, which I totally believe in, which is credit for real-world experience. So I was able to take all that music career, which almost was felt like, what, what was that about? Here I am, I'm skinned, I owe the tax my money. I've had a number one album, and yet does, it doesn't matter, you know. And, but work-based learning allowed me to quantify that and go, yes, there is currency and there is value in it. Um, and also the education stuff, because it was quite pioneering, this this bringing the industry stuff really into education was a, yeah. was a new thing. And you had to fight a lot of battles and it allowed me to make the academic case for rock and roll, which is, uh, I still do it all the time. And I'm still uh, trying to respect real world experience and get universities to look at the difference between wisdom and being educated. An educated person knows how to play the game and knows how to use language. A lot of people in our industry don't have that, but they have this deep wisdom. Anyone who runs a stage, like my mate GCB, who runs stage two at Download, he left school at 12. So he hasn't got that, but he's got this. There's a reason why he's that stage manager and he can deal with uh, Motley Crue's manager, you know, Motley Crue's <laughs> tour manager being stroppy. He's got immense skills. So it's, it's joining them two things together. And it started then, I did my MA, and then the process of doing the MA was massively empowering which was, I can run my own college. Because part of it was looking at your skills and knowledge, and I'm like, man, I can do my own college. Um, and that's the irony of the government saying musicians should retrain. Well, we've all been retraining. We've been retraining definitely since 2005 when music became free and the music industry collapsed. What do you think we've been doing? Um, we all do portfolio careers now. Uh, and Tom, who's shooting this and looking after the tech. He's a professional drummer and he, he edits videos and does art and design as part of what he does. So yeah, so BIM was born and the ambition with BIM was to be um, more edgy. ACM was getting more in, more influenced by the TV shows, the Simon Cowell thing. I hated it because it was the opposite of artist empowerment. Yeah. So BIM was more edgy and it was underground and we started in a little tiny building. And then this weird thing happened where it grew and grew and grew. And it was like, it's like watching Guns N' Roses again, except I was in it. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't advertise much. And every, every Saturday I'd be seeing more and more students wanting to come on the course. And then it got to 2005, um, really became a thing. You know, so we had to bring in people to run it. Then we got investors in and it's been very successful and is very successful to this day. However, my philosophy drifted apart in 2012 
Um, because I do believe that musicians are individuals and and there's a place, like a major label, there's a place for the huge entity, the corporate thing. But if I buy a beer, I don't want a Foster's Lager, I want a craft beer. Um, if I go to a restaurant, I don't want to go to a chain. I don't want to go to Cafe Rouge. Um, I want to go to something interesting, you know. Um, and it's the same with education. So, so after being floated around, doing little bits really, doing a lot of fishing, um, and I trained to be a charter skipper, so I've got to be qualifications to take people out bass fishing in my little boat, which runs out of Brighton still. And I never thought I'd go back into it seriously again. Um, the band toured again, and I was sort of semi-retired after, after that. And then this void appear, appeared in education. And it was about, because I'd made this record with Colour of Noise at age 47, five years ago. And I just had this, I wonder what would happen. It's a hypothesis, really. What would happen if, is it possible to start a new band at 47 and make it work? And it was all pledge back then, or Kickstarter sort of model. Mm. And radio, I discovered, really worked. I was blown away by, instead of teaching about the, this concept, actually doing it and doing the sums. A thousand T-shirts at 10 quid was 10 grand gross going direct to the artist. That direct fan artist thing. You know, what happens if you've got 10,000 fans? What happens if they all spend 100 quid a year on gig tickets? And, and it's... It's really amazing, and Bandcamp, Patreon, stuff like that. It, it's There's no gatekeepers anymore. And I thought that music colleges needed to get off this thing of, of come to us, we'll get you in the music industry. The music industry doesn't exist anymore. The industry I was in is a ghost ship. And they're selling back catalogue and, and uh, fighting very hard to sell pop music, you know. Um, you know, and you know, there's a place for major labels still, but they are—they're not a shadow of the former self. They're a shadow of a shadow, mm. um, and it's of very little relevance to most young musicians. Although some of, some of them still think they want a record deal, those that want a record deal generally haven't don't know what the terms of a record label of a record deal are. Um, it's something that it's an idea that they want. Yeah, it's an an entry, but the reality is, everyone's already in the music industry. You've got direct access to your fans. You've got direct access to almost anyone in the music industry. You can find out who they are and reach them. So you need to make great music and have a strategy. And we wanted a college about that. And also be honest on the way in that this is about you taking responsibility for yourself. And you will have to have another income stream. And it may be two or three days editing videos, or it might be um, journalism, or it might be coding for a website. So long as it's flexible and you can still do your touring, um, then you can make it work. And everybody's portfolio career, pie chart, pizza, with all their income streams, they're all different. So we have to have smaller class sizes, one-to-one -one mentoring. Um, and that's what we did. So we're three years into this Water Bear, the College of Music. And uh, we're a start-up put our own money in, went to the city, did the Dragon's Den thing, got some money and set it up. Had to live through COVID as a startup, which was brutal. But the, the amazing thing was that, because everything's online at Waterbear and on site, um, 
So it worked, that bit worked really well. Right, well, that was the first part of the interview that we recorded with Bruce uh, Dickinson. And I don't think we expected to split this, did we, Chase? But it, it, we're, 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 what, 40-odd minutes in, and there's another sort of 40 minutes still to go. So it seemed the right point to, um, you know, to break off. But what a fascinating fella. Yeah, um, really fascinating. And I didn't expect to go on that long either, because when I'd um, spoken to Bruce about doing this, I told him it was going to be about 45 minutes in total. <laughs> and we kept him on the line for like an hour and a half. Uh, and probably closer to two hours, actually, with the uh, the gump that we talked beforehand and after. Yeah, um, we were on for quite a while. Uh, yeah. and, and I must admit, I've, uh, in the process of editing, I've cut a little bit off the other end as well, where we were just sort of, um, you know, scatting a bit at the end. Um, but he talks so passionately um, and also um, with such conviction um, about everything. I mean, I mean you know, he, 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 he spoke really interestingly about the whole Little Angels thing and, 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 and the, the, the music that came after that. But then he talks exactly the same way about, you know, about BIM and about ACM, about what he's doing now. Mm. Uh, it's just a very considered, thoughtful, you know, bloke. So I thought he'd be a really good guest because, you know, it's. Um, I I know you you like you love that sort of like nineties Brit rock yeah kind yeah. of thing, and um, and you know I, he he started the company that I you know part time work for now, so we both got like a real sort of interest in talking to him about completely different things. But actually, yeah. when you do talk to him, I don't think he sees them as different things. I think he sees them as just like a continuation of a thing. You know, yeah. a love for music ultimately. He's he's really got a handle on how the industry has worked for you know really thirty plus years, and he's really watched it change through that entire period. Mm. And um, and he's very very keen um, to help young artists out, young creatives out. And and to you know, and I know it sounds really contrived because a lot of people do this thing of saying, "Well, look, we we want to help you so you don't make the mistakes that we make." But he's he's very proactive in his thinking, um, and what he's what he's doing at the moment, you know, sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can't say too much. They're a big rival uh, <laughs> these days. Um, well, not a big rival. Uh, we're the largest uh, provider of music education in the UK. Um, but, um, no, it, it is interesting. And, you know, he, I mean, he acknowledges as well at some point, I can't remember which half it's in, that um, because they were offering an online provision uh, as part of their degree course, um, the COVID thing hasn't dramatically affected yeah. them. Whereas, you know, we weren't offering an online provision and there was a lot of frantic scrabbling around in March to get online. I mean, now the provision we offer is fantastic. But at the time, you know, I mean, I'd never used Zoom before March last yeah. year. Can't get you off it now. No, no, now I'm on it for about six hours a day, every day. <laughs> So um, the second part's to come, and we'll we'll get that to you uh, very very soon. Um, and it's it, we we talk a bit more about education, about what he's up to, but we also get into guitars a little bit um, and talk a little bit about you know Gibsons and alternatives and those kind of things. So it's it's a, it's a an equally fun packed. Uh, other half of the conversation that's that's due to come out. Um, which have we decided? Are we going to put it out a week after, or are we going to do the normal gap? 
I would just leave it at two weeks, I think. Yeah. Uh, it'll mess up our schedule. And uh, as we, we've got a sponsor coming on board in uh, January, it'd be nice to have some bagged for that point. <laughs> are, we, are we allowed to talk about that? Well, you know, we've not signed the contract yet. So, uh, But I got a confirmation yesterday that uh, we have got a sponsor. Uh, and uh, who've agreed that we can do it in a very non-corporate way. And Good. that's the best part of it. Good. Because we couldn't have done it any other way, could we? Let's be no. honest. There was no way it was happening in a corporate way. I've never sent an email before that says, "Right, if you agree to this sponsorship, um, we will take the P. Yeah, uh, and they were like, "All right." Right. Well, look, um, fantastic first uh, part of that interview. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, and uh, you know, as you've heard, it was a bit fanboy for me, but it was, uh, but ended up enjoying it far more on a different level than I thought I would. So uh, we'll get that to you um, in as, as next episode in a couple of weeks. And in the in the meantime, I guess, take care, my friend. And you. See you soon, mate. See you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9to42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at The Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production.